This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with broadcaster Phil Donahue. I spoke with him on September 28, 2013, at the Nantucket Project in Nantucket, Massachusetts. Download the MP3 of the produced show with Phil Donahue at onbeing.org. Thanks for making your way over here. I'm sorry I'm late. Oh, that's all right. We actually, everybody's, everybody's behind today. Yeah. Um, all right, Krista, me all right. and your kids. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do what we can. Let me tell you about my show. It's a public radio show. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's an hour-long show, which mm-hmm. is why I'd, I'd, I'd like to... Right. Get an hour's worth of radio with you. Um, and it's called On Being. And it's looking at... I, when I started it in 2003 on public radio, we called it Speaking of Faith. And that's back when the word faith had been completely taken hostage. Uh, you know, uh, what year would that be? 2003, Bush presidency, also 9-11. Um, so there's a lot of talk about religion, but mm-hmm. such a narrow sliver and uh, but but that didn't really so we and it's a big it's a big conversation it's a big in depth conversation it's not a call in so it's really just it's a sustained conversation right. and um, but then we changed the name in 2010 because really speaking of faith didn't describe what was going on it's really about the animating questions which religion has carried forward in time and philosophy but which are not exclusive to religious people right what does it mean to be human and how do we want to live. And I interview a lot of scientists, and I interview spiritual thinkers, and I interview journalists, and I interview parents and poets. And mm-hmm. so um, that's my lens. Okay. <laughs> um, Where'd you go to school? Well, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, and then I went to Brown, which was Whoa. a very strange move. Wow. And I didn't really know how far I was leaping. And then I ended up in um, divided. You survived Berlin. Brown. I did. I think Brown was a pretty forgiving place to land. You know, it's squishy enough that I could be lost for a little while and and survive. Yeah. My wife wrote a book <clears throat> titled uh, "The Right Words at the Right Time." <clears throat> what did somebody say to you at one point in your life that changed your life and so on? <clears throat> You could uh, write your own, or you could have someone write for you, and you had, of course, final cut. Or you could be interviewed, you know. And I did two. I did Muhammad Ali, and I did Ted Turner. Hmm. And Turner's, as I recall, was a professor at Brown. You probably know he went to Brown. He went to Brown and didn't graduate. Is that right? Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't ask him that. (laughs) And he had a professor who, uh, essentially, and he never forgot it, taught uh, the students to think outside the box. Hmm. And that was when he, his uh, apparently brain caught fire. And yeah. Did, did anyone ever interview you and ask you that question? Did, what did somebody? Did I wrote one. Yeah, for, about I, yourself? Yeah, an, an, incident, an incident. Yeah, what was yours? 
Are we on the air here? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I was covering um, a mine disaster in Logan, West Virginia, for a local television station at which place I was employed in Dayton, Ohio. And I had a cameraman with me. We covered for both radio and television, WHIO in Dayton. And we're on the side of a mountain in uh, Dayton. And all of a sudden, I, I'm on the phone, and I am covering this for CBS radio. And I'm like 23 years old. I must have looked 19 or 12. And I'm, I mean, I don't know if you can appreciate what it was like for me to be covering for CBS radio. And I would phone in my reports for the World News Tonight, I think was the name of the program. The, the, the newsman in New York, the anchor person, was a guy by the name of Blair Clark. And I couldn't be more thrilled. I'm on CBS radio. So I've got a camera. So obviously I called CBS TV. And I told them more. And, and my, my station in Dayton was affiliated with the CBS television network. So I introduced myself and I said, you know, I'm here and I, I can cover this for us. I think there were like 28 miners trapped. Hmm. And, oh, yeah, they wanted this. <clears throat> so we used to have to, we had, it was snowing and it was, and we had to keep the camera warm so that the oil didn't freeze. Otherwise, you got a little, it would, wow. you know, it would screech. Yeah. And, we had, and we were by the smudge pot, which is what the miners gathered around. When they would come out of the mine, they would work in shifts trying to reach their brothers who were trapped. And uh, I was raised Catholic, so I, uh, I'm a graduate of Notre Dame, so I have 16 years of Catholic education. And I recall being very uh, attracted to Protestant hymns that we never sang. Now sings my soul, my Savior God. I just, I just thought those were the most beautiful music and lyrics I had ever heard. But of course, I never had any chance to. So we're gathered around the smudge pot at night. The snow is falling. And the miners with this, you know, the soot on their faces and would gather around the smudge pot and pray for the survival of their friends who were trapped. And I remember the song, they, <clears throat> the hymn they sang was, <clears throat> I can only remember part of it. What, what a friend we have in Jesus. Everything to God in prayer. Yeah. And the preacher would join the gathering around the, with the sparks flying in the air from the wood that was burning in the barrel that kept the miners warm. And the sparks flew in the air. The snow was coming down. It was the most beautiful, humble tableau of faith and religion I'd ever seen. 
And the preacher would, after the singing, would say, Dear God, we are gathered here on this mountain, and we ask your blessing on these miners and their families. Please help us rescue them, dear Jesus. And it went on and on. In your name we pray. Amen. And I realized that we hadn't filmed this. And I knew this was going to get on CBS television. <laughs> and I went up to the preacher and I said, Reverend, I'm Phil Donahue from CBS News. And we didn't have a chance to film you. And we very much would love to get this on film so that we can send it to CBS News. And he said, well, sir, I've already prayed to my God. And it just wouldn't be right to do this a second time. I said, Reverend, I'm from CBS News. Your prayer will be seen across our nation. Well, but I've already prayed. I don't, it would not be, it wouldn't be true, it wouldn't be real. Uh, uh, now I'm begging. Right, right. Reverend, your prayer will be seen in in taverns. You know, cause at that time, TV was mostly in <laughs> bar. Yeah. And the American people will see the power of your faith and your prayer. No, sir, I just, I, I've already prayed. I'm sorry. I, I just, this would not be true to God's word and his truth and my truth and the truth of these families. Well, I went down to the, the, the telephone company had put up some uh, uh, pay phones for the media. And I got in that pay phone, I closed the door, I dropped a quarter in, called collect to CBS News in New York. <laughs> and the guy who worked for Blair Clark and the World Tonight on CBS News answered the phone and I didn't say hello I mean I'm holding this phone I could see my knuckles were white and into the phone I said the son of a bitch won't pray and I think it must have been maybe a week or two I'm a slow learner really honestly suddenly after we had gone home and I think they lost most of the miners. I don't think anybody was saved. And I'm home. And, of course, I couldn't get this out of my mind. And I realized that I had been witness to the most beautiful demonstration of moral courage I had ever seen in my life. He wouldn't pray for me. He wouldn't pray for 
the taverns, the people in taverns across America. CBS News. He wouldn't even pray for CBS News. Mm -hmm. And I put the story in Marlowe's book. And it, you know, it called to my attention the, the, the Pharisees and the publicans, the Pharisees. I forget which was which, but the Pharisees, I think, go up to the go up to the altar and they say, I am here, Lord, I love you, Lord. And right, right. I am here. And they're the... They put their know, faith uh, on display. Yeah. Yes. And the publicans, I believe, are in the back and can't so much as raise their eyes right. to the Lord for their... They're not worthy. Mm-hmm. And the, the pomp and grandeur of some religious personalities in our nation who would have no trouble throwing holy water again if one of the station missed it at a plane accident or whatever, you know, get on TV. And the paucity and the the emptiness of some of our religious figures. And this, this humble cleric, I'm sure he was Protestant, uh, would not pray again. He had already prayed. And did that imprint you as a... I mean, clearly it imprinted you on a human level, but did it, did it influence the trajectory of your work in media? Uh, well, this was at a time when I was... Uh, really becoming a little more questioning. Because you had had a very serious Catholic upbringing. Very serious. Um, My mother used to, you know, my mother would say there are two kinds of Catholics. There's a Catholic and there's a good Catholic. (laughs) I never quite understood what was the difference, but my mother apparently knew. Uh, I was a good Catholic. Hmm. Of course I... Never miss mass on Sunday. Our family went every Sunday. Um, and uh, this would be, I was early 20, so this would be not long after I graduated from Notre Dame. And I began to realize that I was, I entered Notre Dame, you know, thinking that I had the answers to all the questions. And I graduated from Notre Dame realizing that not only didn't I have the answers to all the questions, but the questions were now more exciting for me. Yeah. It was like I was free to question yeah. uh, things that I had never... We did have a very liberal priest at the time at Notre Dame, that, and, the, and the, the subject matter just thrilled me. We could read books on the index. The index was a list of books that Catholics were prohibited from reading. Oh, wow. And it was just a thrill, like a vicarious thrill. Uh, I remember uh, reading Immanuel Kant, Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysic. And I used to tell that to girls that I was dating, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I'm reading Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysic, you know. Was that attractive? Did it? 
Well, <laughs> as I recall, it didn't work that much, you know. Uh, I still don't think they, any of them kissed me goodnight, which was about as warm as you got in the 50s. I graduated from college in 1957. Right. So, um, you know, I was a virgin when I got married. I obeyed all the rules. And then suddenly I, you know, I began to see, you know, Catholics voting for Nixon in the 60s, uh, supporting the Vietnam War. And my my wheels started to turn, Mm -hmm, you know. mm Uh, and yeah. I, I saw the cardinal throwing holy water on the wreckage of the plane and things like that, and I thought... The wreckage? Oh, right, yeah. You know, at yeah. the scene of yeah. the tragedy. Yeah, yeah, know. yeah. Believe me, they'd be happy to throw more holy water for if CBS <laughs> News came late, you know. <laughs> so all these little things started yeah. to peck at my brain, and I, uh, I guess, I don't know, everybody, I guess, goes through this. You know, the show you did... In the era, in those years in which you created that show, um, I mean, one thing that I've—I mean, so I watched your show, right? I mean, I was born in 1960, and you turned out anyway. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> By the way, my show was born in 1967. 67, so. yeah. So I mean, in my growing up years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, I mean, but so one thing as I've been knew I was going to interview you, I'm, I'm, I, I understood better what partly what was so unusual that you innovated, which was it was pure talk without entertainment. Right. I mean, you were and um, it, it just it actually struck me as I was just I was looking back at some of it and and also looking at what you've been doing more recently. And there's just a way in which. It very much, you know, what you were doing, what you were drawing out of people and for this American audience was this exploration of the human condition as it relates to society and politics. And those were wild years for the human condition. They were wild years for society and politics. Why was Madeline Murray O'Hare your first guest? Because I knew she was compelling. Um, we had a very boring show visually. Two talking heads. Which had, was unusual then, right? Oh, I, we were competing with other shows. Come on down! With yeah. spinning wheels and people screaming. And Marty Hall was giving away $5,000 to a woman dressed like a chicken salad sandwich. Right. Uh, let's make a deal. And here I come with two talking heads. Uh, the industry didn't understand us at all. And, so, and we were in Dayton. Stars were not available to us. Yeah. So I knew that the only way we could survive would be issues. Something that would compel the viewer. Yeah. And did you know that at the outset? Did you understand that that's what you had to make the issues yes. vivid? I had, remember, I had come from a radio show where I would have the guest, I could have the guest long distance so that 
pretty interesting guest. Mm -hmm. Didn't have to. Nobody's going to fly to Dayton, Ohio to be on a radio show. People used to say, yeah, the Soapbox Derby. And I'd say, no, no, that's Akron. Don't go to Akron. (laughs) And I had interviewed Madeline on the show. And religion Mm -hmm. I just was fascinated with. Mm -hmm. And I am now and I was then. I just, especially coming from Notre Dame. Yeah. And the, you know, prolegomena to any future metaphysic. Wow. And because my own head was starting to change. Mm -hmm. And the devil, as it would be known then, was tempting Phil Donahue, of all people. 16 years of Catholic education. And the devil was saying, why are these religious figures so interested in publicity and... Wealth and uh, why? Why do the wealthiest people in the parish get entree to the pastor that the common people do not? Um, and it's probably hard for people to even remember how controversial an, an atheist, a oh, prominent atheist like oh, Madeleine O'Hare, was. Absolutely, in so. the nineteen sixties, right? It was the worst you could be. Uh, you. Uh, it was right there with gay gayness. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we put a gay guy on. I in know. Nineteen sixty-seven. November of nineteen sixty-seven. Sixty-seven. Yeah, before Stonewall, over a year before Stonewall. But also, just that, like that, right? You put a man right. in and the chair who was a gay man, and I, that was this specimen of something. I, it was like, uh, I mean, I was scared to death because I felt. They're going to think I'm gay. And, you know, and nobody was out in 1967. Yeah. Did you use the language of gay? Was that the language, or was it homosexual? Or Isn't that a good question? I don't The remember. language is so evolving so rapidly now. I, I, can't, I just yeah. can't get over it. Um, I got a call, uh, an email from a young man in Michigan or somewhere, Wisconsin, I forget. And he said, Dear Mr. Donahue, I heard you say on Oprah that you put your first gay guest on in 1967. I think that is my uncle Hmm. who has passed. Hmm. And do you have a tape? And I wrote him back and I said, We didn't know we were going to be the Donahue Show in 1967. Tapes at that time were very large and bulky and expensive. They were like... Tapes were like almost four inches wide. Yeah. It came in big plastic covers, like suitcases. Yeah. And I said, it, you know, VCRs may have existed then, and someone may have taped that somewhere, but I regret I, I know of no copy of that uh, program, but I would like you to know that I think your uncle was as powerful a demonstration of moral courage as I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I also think the program rises to the level of historic Mm. because nobody else was acknowledging gayness. What was the reaction? Well, uh, pretty severe. We lost sponsors. Um, Mothers thought their children would catch it if they saw it. Why are we aggrandizing this man? To put him on television makes him look like he's a, a hero or something. 
just disgust. Uh, and thank God we had a general manager who didn't drop his tools and run. He stuck with us. And one of the reasons he did was that we had a tremendous rating. Everybody was watching the Donahue show. Mm-hmm. And in my business, the coin of the realm is the size of the audience. Yeah. So, you know, that was my trump card. We were drawing a huge audience. So nobody was, go- no general, this general manager, it wasn't easy. Yeah. It would have been much easier to cancel us. It would be much easier to run reruns of I Love Lucy. We were on the air at 10.30 in the morning. There's all kinds of product out there that could have, and a lot less trouble. Um, so, you know, that was, these, this is the first month we were on the air. Uh, we premiered on November 7th, 1967, with Madeline. There is no mm. God, there's no heaven, there's no angels. When you die, you go in the ground and you biodegrade and you become part of the physical universe. Well, my dear, you know, the whole town of Dayton fell down. And the letters came pouring in. But I don't want to overstate it. Dayton is a town that's built on a, not a, the, the river that runs through Dayton, the Miami River, is not navigable. It's a town built on brains, starting, of course, with the Wright brothers. Uh, NCR is uh, there, uh, where the you know the first right. cash register was oh. given to America. Uh, Kettering, Charles Kettering, has a suburb named after him. Yeah. Uh, Charles Kettering invented the starter motor. So there are significant uh, contributions made by the brains of inventors and visionaries from Dayton. And I think, you know, I can't thank enough. I mean, they are responsible for my career. The viewers in Dayton accepted our show by and large. Certainly, certainly we took our hits. People pushed back. And I had salesmen from my station outside my office doors you know, who weren't interested in a speech about the First Amendment, they just lost Rogers Pontiac. You know? right, right, and they right, had right. kids, too, and a mortgage. But somehow we survived all that. And the other thing that you did that I think there was a lot of awareness about in the to- at the time is that you were, I mean, one of the things you were doing is you were broadcasting to a lot of women who stayed at home. Yes, and most women of a certain class stayed at home at that time. And you were uh, assuming that they had brains, right? You were presenting, you were putting a lot of subjects and complexity on at that time of the day. It's amazing to realize how sexist the world was and certainly my industry was. Women cared only about covered dishes, needlepoint, babies, and maybe home decorations. And uh, we came barging in with all these issues, Mm -hmm. including war and peace and protest, 
But you were pretty traditional also, I think, in your in your first marriage. In I mean, when as you, I I did get your memoir that you wrote way back then mm-hmm. out of the library. Right. And you describe yourself also as have coming out of that world that that in fact was shifting. Absolutely. We rode <laughs> the feminist movement, the gay rights movement, yeah, the anti-war movement. We put tie-dye T-shirt kids on with long hair. And this is in the late 60s yeah. who were protesting the war. We had a woman on whose daughter was a student at Antioch College. And she was in the Greene County Jail, having been arrested at a demonstration, and fasting to end the war. And the woman and women in the audience were saying, well, what if she dies? And the woman, the mother would say, why aren't you concerned about the 300 young men coming home from this horrible war in Southeast Asia in plastic zipper bags? Really? Why don't you care about that? And then another one would say, well, I do care about that, but this is your daughter, and I couldn't get them to. And we had something that no one else on television had. Um, and but but sexism reigned. It was a huge issue at the time, and what we did was, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, feminists would come into the show and they would say, "Children get too much mother and not enough father," and they were talking about me. Mm. And did were you having that experience in real time? Oh like, sure. Were you, you were in some ways. It's like you had this front row seat on the nineteen sixties and seventies. I did, and, and you was, were able to like invite the whole cultural negotiation into I the seat would across wish from this me. good fortune on anybody I love. It was a wonderful experience. Mm. I had the every issue on a platform that had my name on it, mm-hmm. and to this day I get. People come up to me, thank you, Mr. D- in airports. Thank you, Mr. Donahue, because of your show, I got out of an abusive marriage. Mm. Thank you, Mr. Donahue, because of your show, I came out to my parents. Um, a lady told me, a woman told me the other day, at 10.30 every morning, her mother would put on her, her lipstick and go into the another room and close the door and watch the Donahue show. So we became kind of appointment television, mm. and especially for seniors, you know, older women. Mm. And, and we did shows with feminists who would say out loud, I don't want to live the life of my mother. Um... You know, and you'd have <clears throat> people calling in. I'm not a feminist, but yeah. And then they'd proceed. Now to, that's what women, younger women, say again. It's come full circle. Yeah, is that what they? Yeah. <laughs> in a different way. Yeah. Um. And then were you, uh, you know, were you aware that this was changing you? Were your views of women changing? I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to say. Certainly. Somewhere along the way, I thought, you know, Dad gets up and has a leather suitcase and 
goes off in the car to the big building downtown, and Mom goes in the basement to do the laundry. And what this was doing to children, yeah. girls especially. And uh, then legislation began. Girls' sports became an important issue for high schools. And, hmm. It's so uh, interesting to think about that, yeah. not having been around. I'm, I'm really. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's really amazing, and the 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 drama continues, the tension continues. Uh, uh, I, I just left uh, Eve Ensler, who wrote Vagina Monologue. She 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 was in here yesterday. I interviewed her. Yeah. Around the world, this. This creation of hers yeah. has aired. It aired at Notre Dame, much to the, I mean, the conservative Catholics and the faculty at Notre Dame just was on upside down mm-hmm. with rage that they would. And it is the most. It is one of the most important, I think, moments in the women's revolution. You know, she, yeah. she she calls attention to uh, the abuse that women take, um, foot binding, yeah. clitorectomies, and suddenly, you know, and even good old Phil, who had all this PhD, you know, education in these things, especially regarding women really fully started to really appreciate how much of the world includes cultures where women are just about dragged around by the hair. Is it right that you put an abortion being performed on the show? Yes, we did. And then you invited the archdiocese and a number of people to discuss it. And we showed them to film. Yeah. Um, and there was that that was at ten thirty on the weekday morning. That was yeah. Now we aired in various times around the country. Okay, but that was it was a regular show. It was that well, day's show. Well, we, we 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 taped the abortion. Yeah, You're right. And uh, and the, and then before we put it on, we called the uh, people from the archives. They came. We put them in a room and showed them the tape, and mm-hmm. of course. When it was over, I walked in the room, and they were weeping. And uh, they were very concerned because it looked so easy. I said, well, this is the procedure. And it's so easy that more people will get them. And I said, you know, this is an issue that is splitting families. This was before Roe versus Wade, or was it after? Roe v. Wade was 62? I don't know, was it? Two? I think it may have been like 70. It would have been after Roe v. Wade. Okay. I'm ashamed of myself. Yeah, me too. I I think it may have even been 73, but maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, it's hard for me to imagine... Anybody getting away with that now? Well, first I, I of all, think we would. you know, doing doing it on network television, a, but also, 
inviting the people who are engaged in the issue on the other side of the issue right, right. to be part of a meaningful discussion about it. Right. Well, it was partly, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I wanted to appear to be open and understanding of this and not hostile to the archdiocese. <clears throat> and the best way to do that was to give them a preview, yeah. allow them to see this before it aired. But you're right, I don't think that would, it wouldn't, it wouldn't air today. Remember, we weren't born on a network. We were a local show. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We had only one place to go, and that was up. And we never expected that. We were concerned about being successful in Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. That was our goal. Right, but you started national conversations, right? You well, started... after we began to grow, mm -hmm, yeah. But mm -hmm. we, you know, we were a local show for a couple of years. And then our own company started to take us. Remember, we're not in uh, Cincinnati was our flagship station. Mm -hmm. Dayton was like a satellite station. Mm -hmm. And, you know, only the good stuff came from the flagship station. And so this was very, it was like upside down. Then Cincinnati took our show, and then Columbus, and we su succeeded there. And then I think one of our first outside the family station was Detroit, and we succeeded there. Mm -hmm. So this took a while. We were like five stations, and then eight, and then six, and then nine, and then suddenly, uh, suddenly, um, New York took our program, and I was on the cover of Newsweek. You know, yeah. so yeah. hot is what New York says is hot. Right. <laughs> um. One thing that strikes me, though, about that and, and also about the work you've done in more recent years, um, you know, we, we tend to, uh, to complain about the way important dialogues go or don't go because they're polarized and partisan. But a deeper problem is that they're kind of resistant to complexity, seems to me, or that's one of the effects of it being so partisan and polarized. I watched you interview Louis Farrakhan. Mm -hmm. That was just a couple of years ago, right? Is that... Well, we've been off the air since 96. But was that... I feel like that... Was that was on in, your... It might have been early 90s. This, but was that in the early 90s? It might have been the 90s, yeah. Maybe late. Maybe... Well, middle you know, 90. I mean, do you remember that, what you said to him, how you started it? Maybe not. You've done a lot of interviews. Well, I think he might have been on more than once, so I don't I, know. You'll have you to help You started, me. you said to him, I'm going to get my notes. Um, it was so striking because, oh, I don't know, it was so in, politically incorrect and so uh, nuanced and so frank. And none of those qualities are, where, let me find my notes. Um, you started out by saying to him, you know, you speak to people's anger. And you said, and, if, and I understand that if I were a young black man, I'd probably be on your side. And you put some of those statistics up there. I said I would be at his right. Yeah, that you would, be, you would get it, that you would share that anger. Right, I remember saying And then that. you talked about how, however... He, you wanted him to know how hard he made it for white reporters. Um, 
how hard he made it for, for people to hear him. And I think you said at one point, you can't get up as a man of God and talk this way, inciting violence. It was just so honest. And we don't have honest public discussions in media or elsewhere. Yeah, I think I scolded him for not being uh, respectful of uh, Jewish mothers, for example. Yeah. Jewish parents. Yeah. Uh, devout Jews who, you know, he called it the dirty religion. Or uh, This is yeah. back when he was really yeah. quite offensive. And um, I, I decided to challenge him on his absence of Christian empathy for yeah. uh, the feelings that he was wounding deeply uh, of... Jewish people and others who uh, lived their life around a faith. So I do remember that part. And, uh, and I do remember saying that, you know, I get it. I can, I've heard him speak, you know. You don't know your name, he would say to a black audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, that their names were given them by white people, uh, you know, Washington and Jefferson. Mm-hmm. And, right, right. Uh, and I recall being struck by the power of that, yeah. and that I had never thought of that. But, you know, race, for example, is something that we now bemoan right and left that we don't know how to talk about, even with a black man in the White House. I guess, I don't know, you know, I, I know that you resist uh, being asked to be the person saying, we did it so much better in the olden days, right? You don't, you don't like to be in that role. Um, but when you watch, I mean, you've talked about war in recent years in a way that got you into hot water. But when you watch... Uh, how we talk or fail to talk, to have the, the cultural reflection we need to have about something like race. You know, could you, could you say how you might like to, you know, how, how we might start it in a different place? Or does your mind go there? On race or something else. Maybe there's something recently you've seen and you've thought, I wish I could start the discussion here instead of there or weigh in in this way mm-hmm. well isn't that an interesting question um, I, I well I a lot of people a lot of my friends <clears throat> you know we bust our kids to a Catholic school downtown to downtown Dayton mm. and I remember I went there the first time the, the plumbing leaked and the little boy's room, and uh, the paint was peeling. And in my suburban neighborhood where we live, um, they had overhead projectors. Um, They had pictures of Martin Luther King in history books Hmm. in suburban Centerville. And in downtown Dayton, there would be an imprimatur of cardinal spelling, you know, Hmm. and the and the pages were turning yellow. 
everything was different downtown. And we, we felt that Catholics were raising another generation of racists. And we didn't want that to be with our, with our children. Mm. And um, I began to realize what paternalism was, too. I was on the board of a of a, it was called the Dakota Street Center. It was a, a center where it was in a black neighborhood, and it was a place where you could... I get, we sponsored athletic events for kids and also dinners with, that were integrated and so on. We were really we were the first liberals. And I can remember we needed furniture, and I said, well, uh, I, I remember very well that in the meetings of the board, the white people guys did all the talking. Hmm. I noticed that. And then I remember when we needed furniture, I said, well, why don't we go to Goodwill? And one of the black board members said, hell, we give stuff to Goodwill. (laughs) And I began to appreciate what paternalism was and how the white man will solve everything and a failure to respect the views of, even among the committed, which we certainly were. And, of course, everybody in my own neighborhood, suburban Centerville, became convinced that we were going to sell our home to a black family. So, you know, uh, we went through that stage. And I came to realize that there were really four... there were stages to commitment. You know, uh, the first stage was the fun stage. Um, you got a kick out of marching and uh, right, right. And uh, it was also a messianic stage. Everybody was a bigot, but you. Hmm. You turned people off. And then the third stage was a sudden, overwhelming realization of the awesome challenge of the problem. That it was the rock at Gibraltar and you were the feather. Hmm. And that's, I think, where the saints were made. People who kept on keeping on. I saw so many people just, you know... Fabulous people to this day. I love them, and I'm, I'm so ple- I'm so proud to have known them. They cared, mm. but they did become exhausted, and a lot of people ha- chose, you know, to fulfill it. This wonderful commitment that they stopped having. They took guitar lessons. Or yoga. Okay. Um, and did we kind of get stuck there? Some culturally? of us. Some of us did, yes. Mm. And yes, a lot of us are. It's hard to, the issue is hard to raise if it's not immediate. Yeah. Remember, this is a time when my first year on the air, Bobby was assassinated. Mm. The cops beat up, beat up the kids in Chicago. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Holy cow, this is the first year we were on the air. And I'm very proud to say that almost every black 
leader, sooner or later, was on the Donahue show. Mm-hmm. Some, a lot more than others. Mm-hmm. And we, I made sure that our staff was integrated. I remember I hired the first black applicant, a female, and uh, I'm embarrassed to say, I mean, one of the reasons I hired her is because she had the biggest afro. But I mean, this is the, <laughs> this is one of the stages, you, you know, you, that we went through, or mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we were trying. We knew we had. And by the way, uh, uh, I'm very proud of the number of times I am approached by an African American who thanks me for my program. You know, I think even there's something refreshing and helpful about you recalling things in that way. Um, Because right now, here in the 21st century, there are a lot of problems which seem so huge. And you, you, I mean, you look back at the 60s as a very fraught, you know, a terrible time, but a time in which incredible social shifts happened. Mm -hmm. And that kind of shift is kind of unimaginable now, and it's not going to happen the same way, but you kind of you're kind of describing this like human wearing down, this very yeah. gradual, incremental. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, cops. Sooner or later, you know, black people saw the de- deterioration of their school system. They saw police brutality aimed at them and not white people. Uh, they saw joblessness. They saw their father pushed around by cops. And pretty soon, the cities exploded. And I think about that now. The gap between the rich and the poor has never been greater and getting wider. And I say to myself, how long can this continue without that explosion? And when it happens, all the shout shows will be, you know, feature black people on panels and uh, we'll all get like a slap in the face. And as they said then, black leaders will say this isn't exclusively a matter of race. There are white people getting shafted too. And we've got to join together. And the way the powerful continue their power is those they control start to fight with each other. So it's kind of a, it's a historic routine that happens over and over again. And I'm amazed when I see, uh, uh, you know, a, a rise in student um, uh, rates at school can provoke a massive outpouring, a huge demonstration in European cities. Yeah. And it doesn't yeah. happen here. Right. So I, in some ways I think we're, it's hard to, I don't know, it's hard to make a better metaphor, however... However uh, trite it may be, 
I wonder if we aren't right now sitting on a powder keg, hmm. especially on the matter of uh, the horrible maldistribution of wealth. Uh, and the comfortable don't really talk too much about that until suddenly they're afraid to go downtown because there are people in the streets. But you know, so you and I are sitting here at a, a gathering where there are a lot of very comfortable people. And um, something that concerns me is uh, I have a feeling that if you had your show now, you would, you, would, you would create a conversation which included, you know, we, we turn it into the 99% versus the 1%. Right. But we really need the 1% in the discussion. Uh, absolutely. You know what so. I mean? Sure. And I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, the different media bring in one side or the other. And then also we reduce it to sides as though there's not real human complexity here. I agree with that. Uh, and how anxious is the 1%? to come down from the air-conditioned office and talk about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, those across the hall from them in the upper reaches of Wall Street are going to want to know why they're doing this. They're, mm-hmm. just, yeah. they're just inciting the, the 99%. Yeah. But it really is unforgivable. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, we bailed out these great giant financial companies and the leaders of these loser corporations have taken the people's money to give them bonuses. I mean, it can't, doesn't get worse than that. But, okay, so let's say, let's say CNN or MSNBC or whatever gave you a three-hour special night to take up the issue, to take this up. Mm-hmm. What would you do? <laughs> Boy, I'd have to have time, some time to think about yeah. it. Yeah. In order to do it right, you'd have to encourage those who benefited during this bailout season, the wealthy who benefited, mm-hmm. treasury people, government people, those who got filthy rich, the hedge fund people, they would, you'd have to somehow get them on the air to talk about it. Yes, right. They would have to be in the But they wouldn't room. come. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it would be counterintuitive for them to yeah. come. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in order to do this right. Now, let's understand this. Everything doesn't suck. I mean, there are some very good media things that are happening. Uh, some good documentaries. The, 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 uh, the web... Uh, New dot com uh, blogs and um, websites are doing are hitting much harder. Uh, there's an article an article about uh, Cy Hirsch. Of course, it was written by a reporter from the Guardian. God forbid it should be a U.S. paper. Um, every major metropolitan newspaper in this country supported the invasion of Iraq. Hmm. Think about that for a while. The, this is the land of the free, of free speech and competition. And corporate media is not interested in rocking the boat. Corporate media is the boat. Hmm. And that's our problem hmm. right there. Hmm. I mean, uh, it's incredible to realize that no 
major newspaper dissented from the worst blunder of military foreign policy of my lifetime. Hmm. Maybe someone would want to argue for the uh, Vietnam War. But whichever it is, it's imagine Iraq had no weapons of mass destruction. Iraq was never a threat to this country. And Iraq remained really pretty, had nothing to do with the towers. And 4,500 of our great young men and women, my mother would call them irreplaceable children of God, Hmm. are dead because we had more interest in going to war than we did in avoiding a war. It's unbelievable how uh, how spending $2 billion a day on things that go boom actually controls our foreign policy. The yeah. tail wags the dog. And this passion of yours became a problem in this recent phase of your career. It did, yes, on MSNBC, yeah. right? Yeah. No, yeah. I was very short-lived. Yeah. I was gone before the, before the invasion. Mm. You know, it's, uh, dissent is way too difficult here. Uh, dissent is too like difficult. That's, um, but that's a big statement. That's a big statement. Dissent is way too difficult. It's, um, no, you, it's not, f- I mean, the, the guns that are brought against you, you know, you're not patriotic, you don't understand uh, our men and women are fighting and dying, and you're criticizing the presidents. Uh, Norman Solomons has a book titled War Made Easy. And one of the points he makes is if a president wants, if a president of the United States wants a war, he can have one. Look how close we came to actually sending hellfire missiles or cruise missiles into Damascus. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we were going to kill babies to to show Assad that it's wrong to kill babies. And our language, you know, the, our, 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 our Americans don't die, they fall, they're fallen. Um, the pretense, oh, our great troops, our, our wonderful troops, our brave troops. These troops come home and the VA doesn't call them back. We're awash in pretense. Do you feel like your passion about this is also rooted in having walked through the Vietnam War again on that front seat of... Well, that's interesting. I never had a dilemma about... I never had the... I was never even tempted to go to Canada. My children were born between... I have five children, Mm -hmm. adult children now, were born between... 1959 and 1965. Five children. So I had to register, but I was never called. No, you know, uh, parenthood was an automatic release from the responsibility. Uh, But I did see, I I remember feel, I felt guilty about a lot of things. 
They say that... And you were Catholic after all. Uh, Catholics, <laughs> Catholics invented... Jews invented guilt and Catholics perfected it. Or it may be the other way around, I forget. But it's true, I did. I remember, uh, you know, one of the things that bothered me in that time, you know, well, this sounds kind of a little phony, you know, sorry it bothered you, you know. But no, no telethons for me. But I saw other guys my age going, and I didn't have to go. Um, I saw uh, the members of the Quaker Society or faith mm-hmm. stand on the corner of Third and Ludlow, uh, American Friends Service Committee, silently every Tuesday, I think it was at noon for an hour. They, I don't, I don't even know if they had signs. They made no sounds. Mm. They just stood there in protest to the Vietnam War, and I, I just, I admired them so much. Mm. Uh, uh, and I thought I should be there, but I couldn't be there because I'm on the, I do the news and I have to be, you know, it was a right, big right, cover. Right. I also, I also was totally moved by Benjamin Spock. Benjamin Spock. The child psychiatrist. The, and, and the author of Baby and Child Care. Yes. I mean, he sold more copies than the Bible. I mean, he, he had more money than God. And he was a patrician New England fellow with the thin tie and the white shirt and the vest. Very tall, thin guy, fellow, physician, millionaire. And I saw them put the handcuffs on his wrists. Mm, I didn't remember that. He, would, he, he protested. He was very uh, large in sane hmm. uh, against nuclear weapons. Right. Because he's, this, he's, these are the instruments that were killing the babies that he right. was helping right. mothers raise. Right. And he would get in the back of that paddy wagon. Mm. And I talked to him about it thoroughly when he was on my show. And he would walk into that jail. They'd put him in a cell where the toilet stuck out from the wall. Mm. Mm. And I remember these things, these details. Mm. He said you had to kick the wall to flush it. And I... I was so moved by his moral courage that I, I did engage in a protest <laughs> just about two months ago in Houston. Two months ago? Yeah. Whenever was the official opening of the George Bush Library. <laughs> and they showed my movie across the street the night before. Body, body, body of, of War. Body of War. I'm yes. pleased to call it to your attention. It's available on Netflix and Best Buy and other places. Body of War showed the night before, and I thought, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and a woman by the name of Leslie Harris, uh, another one of these wonderful people I meet, as I speak to peace groups, and I speak to a lot of empty chairs. Mm-hmm. And these people keep on keeping on. And I'm, I just, have, I admire them so much. Hmm. And so there I am, and I kind of, ego that I am, I got in the front row, and I marched. And, you know, they wouldn't give us a loudspeaker, so we had to use a bullhorn. Uh, there were more cops there than speakers. The cops were exemplary, I thought, 
I shook one of the hands of the cops. You know, I said, you should get a raise. And you could get a raise if we weren't spending a trillion dollars on these wars. Was this the first protest you'd done in your life? Have you done this before? Um, we protested the church, mm. Catholic church, from being more concerned about uh, stained glass windows than... Oh, I remember this. At your church, your home church. The, yeah, yeah. And, and a tower. Yeah. And then, the, you know, we didn't need architectural monuments. We yeah. needed, yeah. you know. Well, we were, we were. (laughs) (laughs) I want to just, we need to, I want to, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I want to ask you a couple more questions. Chris, are we okay with, is Lily here? Are we okay with starting at 5.30? Okay. All right. Okay. So you did come back to children. And I just, um, I want to say, going back to that memoir you wrote in the 80s, I believe. um, 78. The very first line of it, the very first words is, is, if I could start parenthood over again. It was really striking to me that that's where you began. And at that point, you were a huge celebrity, and you know, your show was a huge phenomenon, and you started it with your regrets about parenting. Well, I came to realize, like so many other, too late, too soon old, too late smart. Um, we, we were raised at a time when people thought if... The worst thing you could do was spoil your children. Hmm. You know, uh, kids kids have to know that the life is tough and it's filled with challenges, and you have to make them tough. Blah 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 blah. It was like they were clay, and you had to knead them and push them and right. spank create. Them. Yeah, spank yeah. them, and do, you know. And so, uh, you know, I, I I came to feel pretty guilty about this again, guilt. Hmm. Um, on those occasions when my children pleased me, I didn't say so. Um, and now, when I walk to Starbucks in the morning in New York City, I see mothers, you know, with their babies, some of them in a tram, stroller, some of them in Snuggie. And I see them you know, kissing the babies. <laughs> I love you, honey, you little baby. You're so precious to me. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I never did that. I didn't do that. And you see fathers doing that too now. And, 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 and you see fathers doing it I, too. And fathers, yeah, yes. Yeah. And I think to myself, why didn't I do that? You know? And why wasn't I more... Uh, it's such a more enlightened time now. Mm. Uh, parents are more enlightened in my, I, you know, certainly we have too many children today growing up without that kind of attention. Yeah. So, uh, you know, another, <laughs> yeah. another reason for me wanting to start over <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, my kids all talk to me, so I'm... Do they? Uh, yeah. How, how did they? Uh, I just say it was really interesting to me when I was telling people I would interview you. How many people of different ages said how important you seemed? So even people in their thirties would say, you know, well, people, that show was so important. Right. Yeah. Well, people in their thirties uh, were fifteen when I yeah, did my right, last show. Right. Um, do you, how but are your children? I am surprised. You yeah. Know, that, 
so it, you know, and then I had my brief moment on the stage at MSNBC in the yes in two thousand and two. Yeah. Um, and the movie I made it, it reflects some of the thinking too. It's a very very uh, political film. Mm-hmm. We do not in any way uh, sanitize anything. It's it's about it's about okay. a young man. Honey, I'm in the middle of the interview. Sorry. Excuse me. All right. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's about. Um, I said to, it's about a young man who was. He's a T4. He was in Iraq five days in the back of a truck, and the bullet came down through his. Right. Uh, the T4 part of his spine. That's between the shoulder blades. So he is uh, paralyzed from the nipples down. He can't cough. He's impotent. 20-something male, prime of life. Um, he certainly can't walk. He has bowel and bladder issues. It's awful. And I said, Thomas, I want to show the pain. I think this is the most sanitized war of my lifetime. I think there are people out there, thousands of homes dealing with catastrophic injury just like yours, and I want to show it. Bush said you can't shoot the coffins, take pictures of the coffins. And the whole press corps said, okay, I want to show the pain up close, but I can't do it without your permission. He said, okay. And that is so of a piece, I feel, of, you know, where we started about how your work was really kind of about exploring the human condition, exploring social and political issues, but through this, coming at it from this very human direction. Um, one question I, I'd like to ask you to close is, um, it's a big question, like, if you would reflect with me on how this life you've led and this work you've done has, um, how your, your sense of humanity has evolved, what it means to be human. How, how maybe you think about that differently? Well, I think, to start with, we have to see ourselves in another person's face. We have to begin to have the courage to elect political leaders who will reach out rather than lash out. At the moment, we've got, we're trapped in a terrible place where only leaders who promise to be tough can be elected to public office. I would like more and more people to understand that you save more babies by supporting diplomacy. We have a big headline now. President Obama actually spoke on the phone with the head of (laughs) Iran. Iran, Well, hallelujah. God forbid (laughs) it should have been face-to-face. You know, in the, in the Army, you can be put in jail. You're sent to the brig for fraternization. 
That is a major crime. And the reason is, the reason we don't want our soldiers talking with the enemy is because it's hard to shoot a guy after he's shown you a picture of his kids. Well, let's have Romani show a picture of his kids to Obama and those beautiful daughters' picture to the head of Iran. It's, it just makes it harder to bomb these people. <laughs> and people feel that this is appeasement. This is, uh, I mean, it just amazes me. So you think that, that, uh, that sense of fear of appeasement and that desire for toughness comes out of being fearful? Absolutely so. It's we're homophobia. Phobia is fear. People are afraid of gay people. Um, you know, uh, when a black person gets on the elevator, women automatically clutch their purses closer to their bodies. It's automatic. They don't even think about it. So, and the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights is being crushed. It's being put together like a piece of paper and it turns to dust on the parchment that it was originally written. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, this is a nation of law unless we're scared. We're, we're peeking in windows, listening to people's phone calls, reading their email. We have people in cages for almost 15 years with no charges, no lawyer, no phone call. We're a nation of law unless we're scared. It's amazing how, f- and the people, the American people are standing mute. But what, what to do about that? How to, how to defuse that fear? Somehow, somehow, the, peop- the American people have to be convinced, have to be somehow taught that the framers were right. All the people running around, democracy, democracy, exceptional, exceptional, are the people who are standing mute while the bedrock of this nation is being chipped away. Uh, You you know, I think I'm the patriot. I believe in the right of privacy. I believe a woman's home is her castle. You know, I I don't think you should, without judicial authorization, listen in on... I certainly don't think we should be killing people with drones. We're sending drones up secretly. The president signs off on what there's called signature drones strikes. Mm. Signature strikes are strikes aimed at individuals. We are killing people on order of the Oval Office without even having to open the door to the office. The most cowardly weapon in the history of warfare is the drone. A guy sits in a padded chair in a secret location in an air-conditioned control room looking at a television monitor and saying, there they are, and firing, I think they're hellfire missiles, and we are killing children. And it's maybe page eight of the major newspapers, Mm -hmm. but usually not at all. And I guess it's what you get when you spend $2 billion a day. $2 billion a day on armament. I think that that this language of moral courage, you know, that's a phrase you've used many times. I think even that language could be useful as something kind of injected, injected well, into the. But we also have to convince, you know, 
it's hard to, it's almost counterintuitive not to fight back. Yeah, you know, right. if you punch me, I'm going to punch you exactly, back. Exactly, yeah. And somehow, on the, in the matter of, the, of, of uh, dealing with nations, uh, it, it, just, it doesn't work that way. Right. It's more, you save more babies if you obey the Constitution. If you obey the Bill of Rights, mm. that's the framers were right. Mm. You know, do we really think that firing drones into Yemen and various, you know, uh, uh, Syria, uh, Afghanistan is going to make us safer? Right. We spend billions of dollars on submarines and aircraft carriers. And two guys with pressure cookers closed the city of Boston. We're making it worse. We are not safer. We are preparing our grandchildren for a world where they're going to wonder if they just got on the wrong bus or entered the wrong marathon. And the only way to ease this anxiety, and that's what it is, is to reach out rather than lash out. Present ourselves to the world as peacemakers. You know, we have a basketball player going to North Korea, for God's sake. <laughs> I want to ask you, as the, the Catholic in you, what do you think of the new Pope, of Pope Francis? I mean, you've lived, you, you know, you've been, you've been Catholic a long time, and right. you actually did a show on Catholic clergy sexual abuse. When was that? In the mid-90s? Very early. Very early. With my You've mother watched watching. a lot with your mother watching. Um. Well, well, I don't know the uh, Pope Francis, um, and I, you know, I admire the first step he's taking. He's trying. He doesn't live in the up in the grand, large rooms of uh, the Pope, papal residence in the Vatican. That's that's a good thing. Yeah. Let's not overdo it. Um, but you know, I'm pope or no pope. I, the the treatment of gay people in traditional Catholic teaching is itself a mortal sin. The Church should go to confession for its promotion of homophobia. Uh, you know, if the Church believes they're sinners, it makes it easier. For me to beat him up, if the church thinks, and then this canard about we love the sinner but hate the sin, yeah. is the most condescending, awful thing I've ever heard from the church or anybody else. Have you, over the years, developed a sense of God that is in contrast to the to that doctrine and theology that? has come to make you so, that you've really rejected, that's come to be so uncomfortable? Well, I... Uh, Alf, uh, Lord uh, Tennyson speaks for me. <laughs> Lord Tennyson. I've gone from Emmanuel Kant to Lord Tennyson. <laughs> that's right. It's hidden in a poem titled The Memoriam, which you can look up. Here's what he said. There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, 
than in half the creeds. I read that and I thought, well, I wish I roomed with you in college. You must have been interesting. <laughs> um, and like, you know, I'm dangerous. I have a little knowledge. So that's my little peek into Alfred Lord Tennyson. Mm. Just as I had only a glancing blow to prolegomena to any future metaphysics. <laughs> Cut, yeah. But I, uh, that speaks for me. Um, I used to have fights with Madeline all the time. Madeline, uh, Madeline, Madeline Murray oh, O'Hare. Yeah. I would say, Madeline, you cannot tell a person that you're absolutely certain there is no God. And then in the same breath, you know, tell them that that you're absolutely certain that they can't they be can't, certain they that, can't be certain there is a god. Yeah, yeah. it's a contradiction. You can't yeah. you can't do that. And so, you know, agnosticism may be the the only honest route here. And keep your mind open. I mean, I am impressed with the universe. I look up at night and I go, wow. I mean, it's, you know, we can't f- fathom this. There are distances. The fact that every little pinpoint up there is a sun. Hmm. A sun, except for our planets. Yeah. They're all suns. Carl Sagan said that on the air one day, and I thought, wow, I never thought of that. Mm. On your show? Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, the order, the, the uh, orbiting, uh, the, um, the novas and the... Uh, Great swirls that the that the the new uh, photography is bringing down to us. Yeah, beautiful. The Horsehead Nebula and the Sombrero, and there are things up there that just fascinate me. Mm. And that the light that we're seeing now left what a thousand years ago. I mean, that's how long it took light to get here. Whoa! <laughs> it's hard for me to believe this is an accident, but I'm having more and more trouble. Dealing with a commanding God. Um, I'm having more and more trouble dealing with original sin. I'm not even asked to be born, and I'm born with sin. Hmm. I'm, I, I'm born with a sin. But if you don't have that sin, then what do you do with Calvary? And I wouldn't send my son to be nailed to a tree. Why, do we, why did God the Father do that to his son? And why would his crucifixion be needed to absolve me of a sin I didn't even know I had when, I'm, when I was born? Hmm. All of this, you know, is... Um, and, of course, I've been re- recently attracted to Sam Harris. And Have you? I was just wondering, I was just thinking, who would be the guest on your show now with oh, this line of inquiry? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I think you'd have a lot of physicists on now, too, some of these, the new physicists. Right, you yes. know, but it's funny. A physicist lean more toward the possibility of a god than the, the life scientists do. Well, so they have per- a rich vocabulary of mystery, yeah. as you're, which is kind of what you're, of wonder, right. which is what you're right. describing. And, and you know, um, I've come to know and really admire Ed Wilson, Mm. E.O. Wilson yes, of Harvard, yes. the entomologist mm-hmm. and sociobiologist. He'll pick up a 
bug or maybe an ant. And he'll say, this is a masterpiece. Hmm. And you know, and you see those legs all in unison, propelling the main body forward, the swivel head, the antenna. Uh, there's a brain in there, such as it is. A brain managing these various body parts. And uh, the more I get into it, I, and somebody said to me, and this is an, these are all things that have come to me so late, hmm. you can take a Magellanic voyage around the trunk of a single tree. Oh, man. And yeah, now I know why I was so filled with wonder as a child when I was in the woods and saw that dappled sunlight and the brook and the water rolling over rocks and the, the sound it made and the things that s scooted and skittered when I lifted a rock. And it's only very recently, much later in life, that I realized this can be studied. We don't know all the answers here. As a child, I just thought, that's what it was. You know, who made you? God made you. Sit down. Right. <laughs> and I wasn't encouraged to study it. And that's why the young people today who have moved into the natural sciences and go out and get their socks wet, walking through woods and their little notebook, and you know. Yeah. I, I'm so impressed with these people. They're going to save us all. I think what you've modeled is... Study by conversation, you know, inquiry into daily life, too. So I, I want to thank you as somebody who's doing my part in that lineage. Well, thank it's you. It's a real honor to meet you. Pleasure, Krista. I'm very impressed with your, the way you take the conversation, and I want you to, I'm sure you will, continue it. And believe me, there are some peop many people out there who can carry this ball and I mean, throwback answers that will just, I think, be a thousand times more inspiring, informed. You know, the people who got smart early. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the people you want to talk to. Wow. They're fascinating. I ought to know I've met several of them on my own show. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Krista. Yeah. Oh, that was great. Thank you so much for giving me all that time. Okay. <laughs> I hope you have to leave the... How do we do, huh? We didn't embarrass the family? No. <laughs> Thanks. Fabulous. Thank you. It was also, I would say, I, your, the story of you and Marla getting together is one of the most romantic stories that's relatively... Oh, I tell you, you that.